Welcome to the Neuroscientist Talk Show, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm Fidel Santa Maria, sitting in for Salma Koresh. Okay, so our guest today is Christoph Koch. Uh, he's a Louis and Victor Trundle Professor of Cognitive and Behavioral Biology at the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech where he works on many topics such as understanding selective visual attention, the neuronal correlates of consciousness, and how individual nerve cells process information. I guess that as an example to explain Dr. Cogsiver's interest, I would like to mention the topics of two of the books he has written in the past. The most recent one is titled The, Con the Quest for Consciousness, focused on explaining to a general audience the neuronal basis of the subjective mind. And the other one is on the other side of the spectrum, Biophysics of Neural Computation. This is a textbook, which, by the way, I actually use as a basis of my computational neuroscience class at UTSA. And this book is centered in understanding the biophysical mechanisms underlying computation at the level of synapses, channels, and membranes. So, Christoph, welcome to UTSA. Thank you, Fidel. And uh, around the room, we have Nicole Wicham. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. Okay, so I would like to start by referencing a section of your website. Uh, one of the links is about the books you've read in recent years, and you put comments on them. And I noticed you read a book by Haruki Murakami. And uh, this is a very Kafkian author who I love, by the way. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised he gets a Nobel Prize one day. But Murakami describes characters that travel through a world that seems to be in a permanent state of twilight, almost a world that is unconscious of itself. However, the characters are really aware of almost every single detail that are on them. And I wanted to refer to these authors since consciousness is one of your topics of interest. And, um, and I was wondering if you could just give us, uh, just to start the conversation, uh, a primer on how you go about scientifically characterizing consciousness, what is and what is not consciousness, the neural correlates, and where we stand today on this issue. Uh, all right, so I've, I've adopted this flexible working definition of consciousness. So first of all, people say you can only study scientific subjects if you rigorously define them. And of course, that's not true. If you go back any point in history, people studied genes, so they studied electrons before either the genes was precisely defined or the electron was precisely defined. Same thing is true for consciousness. In many sense, it's a pre-Copernican term. Very different people use it in different ways, just like today, memory, you know, 100 years ago, now we know there's work memory, and there's long-term memory, episodic memory, short-term memory, etc. So the, the um, definition of consciousness I and many people adopt is sort of um, um, perceptual awareness, perceptual consciousness. You can hear my voice, you're conscious of my voice, if suddenly I keep on talking, but there's, uh, you know, Obama is uh, the president appears in the room, then although I might be talking, you totally lose consciousness of me. Although my voice still impinges on your hair, on your, on your, on your receptors in your ear, and I still process to a certain extent, but you, you don't become conscious of my voice anymore. Yet it's still present at some space. Or you can think about consciousness for pain, or consciousness for pleasure, or for seeing red. Those are all different conscious states. And now you can study them. You can put a person in a magnet. You can ask what happens if you see compared to what happens if the, let's say, the, the, the color red is present on my eyes, but I don't attend to it and I don't see it. Where's the difference in your brain? You can look at what happened with Oliver Sacks' patient. He has a famous patient who had a, a painter who had a small stroke. He recovered from the stroke, yet he was um, colorblind. He had central echomatopsia. Nothing wrong with his eyes, nothing wrong with his photoreceptor, but a part of the brain, we think it's somewhere in the V8, a high-level part of the visual cortex, was permanently destroyed. And you looked at his paintings, they were profoundly different. So you can 
you can now sort of study that in detail. You can then go on a monkey and you can see what parts of the monkey brain are necessary for doing certain types of color discrimination. What happens if you do, for example, uh, you know, a lesion experiment or conditional knockout experiment in such an animal where you take, where you, you know, knock out the, the, those neurons. And so that's one way, and that's the most popular way right now people study consciousness, which is what's called a subtractive strategy, where you look at what happens to the brain when you see or when you perceive, and what happens when the same physical input is present but you don't perceive. Okay, so that's cool. But uh, what like, you have to do with the book? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, um, no, just jumping to a, a different, from a different perspective, um, or from a modeling perspective, how, how can we go... I mean, if, if you were to simulate these things, these processes, and you want to... Uh, although it's, right now it's not well-defined, how can you go about and build an algorithmic process in a computer uh, so you can say that you're studying some type of conscious process? Is it like, I guess I'm referring to visual awareness or saliency and stuff like that. Wait, so, so if you if you talk about visual consciousness, mm -hmm. so for me there's no distinction. So Francis Crick and I made this point many years ago. Unless there's an operationalized definition, uh, I don't agree with the philosophers like Ned Block who distinguish awareness from consciousness. Unless there's an operational way to distinguish them. Right now we don't. We think they're the same. So you can only model consciousness if you have some, as you said, some algorithmic idea. You need a theory of consciousness. And I think there's only, there's really only one good candidate around the theory of Tononi, Julie Tononi and his people. And they, they have an information theoretical approach to consciousness. And they think it has to do with complexity, with a system that has lots of causal interaction among its parts. And out of that causal arrangement, that constitutes uh, consciousness. Here's a precise mathematical way to explain that. And if you believe in such a model, something or similar to that nature, then you can model it. But without having a precise really precise idea of what consciousness is, you can't model it. So it's much easier not to model it right now, but to manipulate it experimentally, because I can manipulate it. Right. You know, I can put you to sleep, I can put you to anesthesia, right? Your consciousness goes away. So right now it's much easier to study it experimentally than it is to, mo to, model, it, um, to model it on a computer. That's going to be much more controversial. So what is the lowest level of consciousness that you've seen right now in... in in, for visual awareness, for example. Um, what, what do you mean? At, so what level in the cortex have you seen damage where there's still consciousness? How far down to V1 can you go and still have conscious awareness? Well, okay, so that's, that's somewhat controversial. So, so Francis Crick and I published a Nature article in 1995 where we said that consciousness does not reside in V1. What we meant by that, that neurons in V1 do not directly give rise to visual consciousness. Now, of course... If I look at you, my neurons in my eye, you know, are, are somehow relate ultimately to the percept of you, you know, seeing in front of me. But I can close my eyes and I can still sort of faintly see you and tonight I might dream about you. So, you know, I don't need any of my, my, my visual periphery. Now, people have done fMRI experiment where they manipulate consciousness and then they say, well, um, consciousness, the footprints of consciousness seem to be evident in primary visual cortex. But then in monkeys, you don't see that. So if you do in monkey, you do experiments with single electrodes where you record from individual neurons. You find legions of nerve cells that fire to a stimulus that the monkey doesn't respond to and seem to be that seem to be perceptually invisible to the monkey. So there's a discrepancy. So now people discover doing more sophisticated experiments, like David Heger had a paper on it in, in, in Nature Neuroscience and a few other people, that you can dissociate the primary visual cortex, even in humans, from visual conscious activity. In other words, where you, where you can see that in primary visual cortex, you get... 
you get states that you can read off from the hemodynamic activity in primary visual cortex that do not correspond to what the subject currently is conscious of. That seems to suggest it's actually true that in primary visual cortex, it's not the place where where visual consciousness happens. So now you can try to chase it up throughout the brain. You can ask V2, you can ask V4, you can ask, you know, prefrontal cortex, and that, that's what people are, um, are right now trying to do. You need the cerebellum. Well, if I lose my cerebellum, I won't be able to do, be a ballet dancer, I won't be, you know, rock climber, but they're, they're, from the evidence I've seen from people who have lost the cerebellum, there doesn't seem to be a dramatic disturbance in, let's say, visual consciousness or in auditory consciousness or in olfactory consciousness. So from that, I conclude that you probably don't need that the cerebellum is not a neural correlate of consciousness, or at least of visual consciousness. Do you, do you expect that? Uh, do you expect to have a, a sharp transition at some place that consciousness no. starts to have a big effect all of a sudden, and then there's a big divide between non-conscious and conscious processing? Well, that, that we don't know. So it's not going to be brain areas, it's going to be set of neurons, right? I mean, right now, brain areas, because that's what we have access to in fMRI in, in the clinic. Ultimately, what we want to do is we want to do things like Carl Dysroff experiment. We want to do, you know, inducible, where we use channel redoxin to, to inactivate, let's say, all the cells that, that sit in layer 3 in D1 that project to area MT, you know, the motion processing area in a, in a monkey, to see are those specifically involved in conscious perception of motion. And then I... Then I'd like to inactivate the neurons from MT that go back into V1, other that go down to the to the tector, that go down to the superior colliculus to see whether those are involved. And then I know it's not it's not going to be even all layer five projections there because I know from the Allen Brain Project that there are very different genetic subtypes there, and I'd like to know which specific subtype it is. So it's it's not going to be you know all of V1 and nothing in MT. It's going to be much more sophisticated. Um, what if, Nicole? Yes. How how much is this going to also be task dependent or, or, or relevant to? Because there's some some evidence that you can have uh, a lack of consciousness all the way up to FFA, FFA or you know, fusiform face area, which is a very high level process. You would expect there to be consciousness if there's activity there. But they've had these these uh, um, you know do, um, what's it called when you present one image in each eye binocular uh, binocular really where where the person is attending to the house and you still get activation in, in FFA. Uh, and so there's no question, just having raw activity, particularly raw hemodynamic activity, which remember, it's not neuronal activity, right? You're tracking blood flow, which is only very indirectly related to neurons, does not by itself equate consciousness. Yes, there's, there's no question about that. So it can't just be any activity in any part, in this part of the brain that gives rise to consciousness. It's got to be something much more sophisticated, some sort of, you know, much more organized, much more coherent acti activity that gives rise to but conscious I, I, sensation. I have a question in, in terms of, um, it seems that there is a big interest in understanding in your work and I think in others, um, the conscious aspects, in, uh, like in primates, right? Is there, is there a way that you can envision to study this phylogenetically, like try to align yes. animals... Uh, uh, into some kind of ruler that says consciousness, right? Yes. Uh -huh. So what are your thoughts about that? So I, I, I worked with David Anderson at Caltech uh -huh. for a number of years. I'm trying to develop a mouse model of, um, um, of uh, uh, consciousness using, using trace conditioning and delay conditioning, two different forms of associative conditioning. And we know from human experiment that one form called delay conditioning, where the t let's say the tone and the shock come exactly at the same time, that does not seem to re require consciousness. So in humans, you can be conditioned to that, even though you might not have paid attention, let's say, to the tone or to the eye blinks being done mm -hmm. with, with eye blink and, and with puff of air. 
Or the other form, first you have the tone, and then let's say half a minute later you have the puff of air. That's more sophisticated. At least in humans, that seems to require um, consciousness, awareness of the stimulus. You have to you have to know there was a tone and there was a puff of air, and one always preceded the other one. Mm-hmm. Now, making the assumption, just like in a disease, when you say, okay, I study disease model, let's say schizophrenia in mouse, you make the assumption that maybe this is also true in mice, and now we can try to study the brain basis of the difference between trace and delay in mice, and one seems to involve cortex, particularly then to a single cortex, the more sophisticated form, and then I can try to inactivate it. Right. The other one doesn't form. Yeah, so it's no question that certainly all mammals have consciousness, and it's probably it's going to be much easier to study them because I can do this perturbation. These, these, uh, I'm not condemned to just do correlation. You know, fMRI and single units all correlation, right? but we really, really need to move to causation, and that, of course, I can't do, in a, or I can only do to a very limited extent. That's a very good point that you're making, Fidel. Now, of, of course, I can ask, well, why stop at mammalia, mm-hmm. right? right? So uh, I think, you know, if I look at the complexity of behavior in bees, very complicated, the delay non-match to sample, they can do counting, they can do navigation, they can do these mazes, very complicated decision. You can train them very quickly, much quicker than you can train a monkey with two or three, you know, with sugar water at the end of one of these mazes. They can do amazing feat of navigation. They have the dance, they can do the swarming where they can choose their nest site. So how do we know that it doesn't feel like something to have to be a bee? They have 850,000 neurons. They have highly complicated this mushroom body, very nonlinear feedback. So for all we know, they may be conscious. And our intuition tells us, well, they're just bugs. But of course, our intuition has been wrong before for, for, for many things. So in that, in that sense, that the, <clears throat> with relating to bees, there is some idea in neuroethology that there is actually a collective consciousness in, in animals like bees or ants that actually have a very important societal role. I mean, like the, swarm intelligence. Swarm intelligence, mm-hmm. or, or, or the, in the ants where you have the scout ants that leave traces. And, and, you know, so there's a, a very important role in social interaction in these animals and social consciousness and, uh, as a group. Is it, what do you think about that as an extension of consciousness? Well, so A, of course, the same would be true of us. I mean, we have much more social differentiation in us now. You know, if you look at a person who does nothing but day trader or nothing but option trading, that's such an you know, unheard of degree of specialization. Right, so the same thing would apply to us. So one has to be careful. Is it just a metaphor? You know, there's social consciousness and there's feminist consciousness and all these other forms of consciousness. Is it just a metaphor? Is it something more concrete? I think it, once you have a theory of consciousness and any theory that's formulated, ultimately any theory of consciousness will be formulated in the language of information processing. And you have to ask, what's the causal interaction? Then, of course, I can ask, what's the causal interaction between you and me or me and the stockbroker? And, or one ant and another ant, or one bee and another bee, and it might be possible that you, that this also constitute, albeit a much weaker form of um, of, uh, of consciousness. Well, but there, then I guess the functional definition of consciousness, then you will have to apply it there, because one thing is to have like a shared uh, knowledge, like monkeys or elephants have this shared knowledge that gets passed on, but if you kill one element of the uh, uh, colony, it, are the remaining less aware of a specific part of their surroundings, or they just lose that knowledge? And, and th- those are two different things, I, I, I think. Yeah, but same thing if you, again, look at human society. If somebody dies, you know, their knowledge may be gone, but, you know, if it's widely shared, let's say if they're policemen and policemen dies, that the, the knowledge that the policemen have is still carried by the, by, by the other professional and policemen, right, so right. so 
that again is, I think, similar to neurons. When a neuron dies, you know, a lot of that knowledge, that quote implicit knowledge is still there. So the question is, is it more than a metaphor? Can you make this, this idea of social conscious more precise than just, you know, than just at this, at this, at this level of, 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 um, of analogy? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think the difference is that my level of consciousness resides on very dense causal interaction between my brain. So, for example, if you look at my left and my right brain, there are 200 million fibers, right? The corpus callosum. They fire a couple of hertz. So if I look at it in terms of bit rates, there's an enormous amount of information exchange between my left brain and my right brain that totally dwarfs any information. You know, see, at the rate that we talk, we, we talk typically at the rate of a few bits a second. That's a sort of typical. So compared to that, this is vastly, vastly, vastly bigger. So therefore, I think any form, at least for us, any form of social content is going to be always so much weaker than the consciousness within my, just because my brain is much more tightly connected. Now, it might be possible in 100 years that I have some matrix-like technology where I can take my left hemisphere and directly jack it into your right hemisphere, that I can directly merge. And then I think, or, you know, maybe we can take your brain and my brain and totally merge them by somehow superimposing and multi, you know, piggybacking onto my corpus callosum. Then I think we can really get a really truly new form of content that is half you and half me and, you know, in some really interesting new stuff. So I think that might be possible at some point with future technology. So it would be the Vulcan mind now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. it would be definitely be a mind blend. Right. But isn't but isn't one of the ideas of consciousness that actually the problem is is that there's too much information going across your corpus callosum that a lot of what consciousness does is it serves as a bo- one thing that may may do is serve as a bottleneck. Well, that's attention. That's not consciousness. So so attention. Yes. Yeah, so it, so we we evolved. So all of us, all organisms evolved these set of selection strategies to downsample. We have vastly more information. And we've got a downsample. And collectively, we call the things attention. There's, uh, you know, saliency, there's spatial attention, there's, um, you know, bottom-up attention, top-down. There are all these different forms, and they're implemented in different ways in the brain. So I think that's what, con- that's what uh, uh, attention does. And typically, you're conscious of what you attend to. So typically, first you have attention, and then the output of attention is what you're conscious of. It doesn't always have to be like that, but that's, uh, that's typically the case. So you're right. Most of the processing in your brain, of course, is unconscious. The vast majority of processing is unconscious. And that's true for almost everything we do, right? I mean, we get, you know, I give you something, you pick it up while we talk. It's a very sophisticated ability. So we know this because a robot, you know, we know it's difficult to program a robot to do that. While I do all these other things, my body does, you know, only what I'm conscious of is only a very small bit. It's the tip of the, of the iceberg. Most of the stuff that goes on in our head is unconscious. And we know this also at a high level because suddenly one morning we wake up, we have an idea. We have no idea where this idea comes from. You know, yeah, I thought about this problem before, and then, you know, I slept about it for a couple of days, and suddenly this idea pops into my head. Of course, what happens, and there's now a whole bunch of psychology research to back this up, this is an incubation period, and all the time my unconscious sort of is busy generating, generating possible solutions, but most of them don't make it, and then occasionally an idea pops up, and most of the time it doesn't work out, but occasionally it's really a truly novel idea. So I was wondering, that gets me to what I've been wondering while listening to you, which is, what is the function of consciousness? I mean, that's a crazy, impossible question, but especially the way we pose it, like if you're asleep versus you're awake kind of consciousness. But if I was looking at it the way you just said it, in which there are all these unconscious, intelligent things going on in the brain, and then there's this tiny little piece of it that's not really all that much more intelligent, but which somehow requires consciousness in order to function. And if I was going to build a robot that had all kinds of human capabilities and was intelligent at some level, what would I get extra 
if I knew, if I could figure out how to program consciousness into that robot? Is there an answer to that? Well, I think there are two categories of answer. So one is that Francis Crick and I advocated that it's... So let's say we're in L.A. and suddenly there's an earthquake. Okay, it's the first time I've been in this room. I rapidly got to remember how did I get into where the big glass surface is, where, you know, how can I most quickly get out of this building, right? So I've never done this before. So that's what I need consciousness for, this rapid planning, right? So it's a rapid summary of all the relevant information. Most of the information is irrelevant, like the color of the blackboard and the language that you guys talk, and all that is irrelevant to this problem at hand. I rapidly need to take a huge amount of information, summarize it, and come, come up with, this new, with a new solution, new because I've never been here before. But so that sounds I, interesting, sorry to interrupt, but that sounds interesting because most of that information was probably not conscious to begin with. No, no. So I have to make it, so folks, I may have to go to my memory banks. I may got to remember, okay, how did I get in? How many doors did I pass? Exactly, yeah. So, but that I need to call up this information. Now, if I do it every day, if I'm like a special forces soldier and, I, you know, it's a hostage situation, I really plan how, you know, even in the dark that I can move inside this room to, to liberate hostages, then it's very different because I train and train and train so I don't have to think about it. So, right, I can just do it automatically just in the act, thinking all flow. But if you do it for the first time or the second time, that's really what, when you've got to reflect. So that's one possibility, that conscious evolved for something like this. And many people have said similar things. The other more radical possibility is that consciousness doesn't have a function. That consciousness is that just like molecular heat, right? so we never sit down and ask, what is the function of temperature? Or what's the function of electric charge, right? We find ourselves in a universe where these things called electrons and positrons, and there's positive and negative charge. That's the way the universe is. We can exploit them to build computers and other things, but they don't have a function. Maybe, similar with consciousness, maybe certain types of complex systems like brain have consciousness associated with them, or at least a subset of them. That's just the way the universe is built, it will, you know, or came out to be, and it doesn't have any function whatsoever. This is called this epiphenomenon, you know, this is epiphenomenalism. That still means that consciousness is real. In fact, the most real thing, there, because the only way ultimately I know about the universe is through my consciousness. Otherwise, I, I would still live in the universe and be in the universe, but I wouldn't know about it at all. So it says consciousness is real. It's the most real thing there is, but it may not have any function. It seems, it seems crazy, right, for a biologist in the... It's an interesting argument in the sense that if you have this thing, amazing thing called consciousness, it seems like that it would be subject to evolution and all of a sudden would would evolve a purpose, right? You would use it for something and then therefore, even though it didn't arise, I mean, it's causality and evolution are always kind of crazy, right? A lot of evolution is not for something, it just happens and then all of a sudden it becomes for something because it gets exploited by something Yes, yeah, so uh, it might, something it might be a bad nature. Right? And that's what, in some ways, that's what biology, that's, that's the cause of, the causal part of evolution, right? It, things don't happen for a reason, but all of a sudden they become a reason because they get used. And in this sense, it's an emergent property of, of an intelligence system. So I think either it's a, so there are two possibilities. Either it's a fundamental property of the universe, so just like there's mass and time and energy, okay, there's consciousness. This is known as a panpsychism. It's a very ancient belief. It's both in the West and the East that everything is, is conscious to a certain extent. Um, or it's an emergent phenomena. That means that certain things don't have it, namely the things that are below the emergent, right? They don't have it. So rock doesn't have it. This guy doesn't have it. My iPhone may or may not have it, and C. elegance may or may not have it, but we have it in somewhere that's degraded. So I think those are the two possibilities. Very, very, very crudely spoken. Right now, we have no idea whether it's one or the other. We have no idea, and you know, people go on one side or the other, but we really don't know. 
So in that case, I make a robot. I don't purposely put consciousness in there. I just put it all kinds of great capabilities in the robot. And, and maybe day, that's a better way of I doing look it. And the robot says, I'm conscious. And it's true. So that's one possibility. That's a Chinese box paradox or something like that in computer science, right? Well, that relates to... Chinese Yeah, Chinese Chinese room. Room. that relates to understanding. So that was right. John Searle, a philosopher right. of mind, who sort of tried to argue that computers never really understand because it's Chinese right. room. So I think that's really... Philosophers love that because they can right. spend months talking about it, uh -huh. but I don't think it really is very useful in the uh -huh. real world. Uh -huh. Well, what about the... Uh, what about... Um, your thoughts on how to formulate whether uh, consciousness has a causal role in our behavior? Well, okay, so that's a very controversial question among, philo among oh, philosophers and also psychologists, so people worry about this. And, of course, they do find every time when you take a task, when you say, okay, this requires consciousness, and you go in the lab and you train it, and then after you do it a thousand times, you discover, well, the, the undergrad doesn't need it anymore. But that's, of course, after you train it a thousand times, right? So it's very difficult, by, by design, it's very difficult to test these things when you think consciousness really only needed for sort of novel things, you know, that are unexpected. Um, so right now, again, we don't really experimentally know what the answer is to that problem. We just find ourselves with this consciousness, and we don't really know the function of it, or it has a function. And traditionally, that's why I don't talk a lot about function, because in general in biology, questions about functions have not been that useful, you know, to understand any mechanism. Right? You don't see, you don't start off in your research, okay, what is the function of birdsong? Obviously, it has some function, but you look at right now the mechanism, what part of the brain is involved, and how do you manipulate it, right? So I think we should also do that in terms of consciousness and study the mechanisms of it. And when does it happen? Does it, is a fetus conscious? What about a young child? What about an aphasic patient? You know, all those questions. And at some point, I think we'll answer one way or the other the question, what is its function? So I, I'm a little... Uh, I didn't quite understand the distinction then between attention and, and consciousness. I mean, it, selective attention sounds to me very much like consciousness in the way you're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, but you can experimentally... <coughs> so it's interesting. When I first talked about this before I tenure, interestingly, uh, 25 years ago, people like Terry Sanofsky and his uh, wife Beatrice Golom said, you shouldn't really be talking about consciousness. You're just doing that because it's sexy and gets you in the newspaper. What you really should be talking about is only attention. Because that's really what you're talking about. You're talking about selective attention. And at the time, I already felt that it was wrong. There were different processes. But now, my lab and lots of other labs have provided evidence that you can manipulate. So, for example, you can show, I'll show one example in my talk, you can show that you can attend to things without being conscious of them. I think that's very clear now. A number of people have shown you can pay selective attention to parts of an image where you can show through priming and FMI, all sorts of other effects, there's an effect, but you're not conscious of that. So certainly that's the case. I think also there are cases when you, when you um, don't pay attention but are still conscious. So I think there are two separate uh, biological processes. They're often allied. Like right now you're paying attention to my voice and you're also conscious of it, but it doesn't have to be like that. And the function of one is very clear. As we've talked about before, the function of selection attention is to get somehow narrow down this torrent of information that's impinging on my receptor surfaces to something that I can manage in real time. One of the most interesting things about the whole discussion is that that sort of experimental craftsmanship. So one of the things we all have to do that we don't talk about very much is design experiments that dissociate different variables and that get specifically to the point that we're trying to make. And in this consciousness field, that skill it has to be very carefully honed because the whole point is to pull apart things that But that's Some cool. people even claim or can't be pulled apart. And it, yeah, but and that's true for any other. That's true in psychology and in neurobiology as well. Right? It's true. I just think that the kinds of uh, 
the the challenge for the experimentalists in my field is is a lot simpler. We uh, the complexity of the uh, of the variables that are interacting with each other and the the arguments that people have between the difference between the, the meaning of this word and that word are less. And I, th- I just respect the uh, the skill the the craftsmanship that goes into these experiments that try to tease apart these things from each other. There's no simple gene assay that tells you there's a consciousness here and not. <clears throat> yeah, but we also know there's no simple assay for memory. And, you know, right. when we think, oh, now we know what gene is involved in LTP, we knock it out, and it turns out the mouse has no geno- has no phenotype, right? So even That's when true. We, we, we think our experiments are a lot simpler than they really are. Yeah, and then very often the conclusions are, not, are sort of inconclusive. And yes, it's, it's gene is somehow involved, but actually how it is involved, we don't really know. So this is just a new field, and anything new is always more challenging early on because you've got to sort of predefine your term. You have to have sort of some framework. And after you, have a, after you construct a scaffolding, then it becomes easier to fill in. But first you need to sort of construct the outline of this new house and new building I want to build. Yeah, so I think early on it's a little bit more difficult. The big, big, big difference is... There's one huge difference is that all the stuff we talk about in our labs have third-person manifestations and only third-person manifestations. What makes consciousness unique, it also has a first-person manifestation. Okay, we don't think a super, it feels like something to be a super spring. We don't feel, you know, when we study supernovas or uh, genes <clears throat> or, you know, um, V1, primary visual cortex, we don't think that those things by themselves have, have subject, have first-person perspective. But I, in addition to my brain and all the neurons you can poke in my brain, I feel red, I see red, and I feel pain, and I am angry, right? And so that's the heart of the mind-body problem. How does the first-person account map onto the third-person account, the account of my brain that's accessible to all of us, where I can go in a magnet and, do, and you know, my brain waves can be measured, and we want to understand, link those two. And that really makes consciousness unique compared to anything else in, in, in the sciences. So all of behavior, regardless of whether it's conscious or not, has this uh, strange quality that it somehow arises from the interactions between neurons, which are way simpler things and have a lot narrower range of behaviors than whole organisms do. And a lot of what you've done in the past has been the study of neuronal properties and where those properties come from, the connection between molecular and cellular properties, and then cells to networks. And, and we, if we study the neuroanatomy of the brain, we see networks of all different sizes and hierarchies of networks built on each other. And uh, I wonder what you think about the, whether, we can, whether we can actually dissect out the layers, the hierarchy of the brain, whether we go from cell and then there's some well-defined supracellular assembly that we could call something, and then those get assembled into something that we call something? Or is this going to be some kind of crazy continuum where that, that doesn't allow us to parse it up into levels? Because the gap between the neuron and the whole organism just seems really huge. I think there's a clear unambiguous answer, and that's yes. <laughs> to all. But let me, let me ask something. <laughs> I'm very serious. Uh-huh. I think it depends. It's going to be very complex. We know it's split brain. Simple case. I cut two in a million fibers, and as fast we can tell, there are two conscious minds inside that one skull. So in that case, sort of, we can provide a simple answer. But now, if we take away, if we do what philosophers love to do, you know, say, what happens if I take one neuron away, then take another neuron away, and take another neuron away? You know, at some point, you know, is it going to be an abrupt discontinuity? Is it going to a smooth one? 
Well, I, what inspires me to ask a question like that is just the experience of dissecting a brain. So anybody who's ever taken a neuroanatomy class starts to cut open a brain, and what you see is that it isn't, um, it isn't a continuum. It's broken up into little components you, that you can name and have been named. And they're, they're very discrete boundaries a lot of the time. And you can see that from one brain to the other, they have the same uh, organization. So if I was opening up an electronic device and I saw that, you know, all of, that there was one blue circuit board over here and another red circuit board over there and they were connected by wires, I would say, huh, these look like real things, these components. But that's exactly the case for an iPhone. Does anybody else have an iPhone here? Yeah. Well, sure. we can open Everybody it up. Does. And, oh, I, <laughs> I don't. Um, I guess. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. that. <laughs> and we can open it up and we discover, you know, they're remarkable, similar. Yeah. In this so, case, they're probably so almost these identical. Things, these things do have discrete components and they're organized in a hierarchical way. And that's the way we design electronic devices. We don't design them uh, as a crazy hodgepodge. We break them up into little modules and then we define the connections between the modules. And it looks to the neuroanatomist as though the brain is organized that way. I, I wonder, is that going to work? Is that way of thinking about the brain going to work? Um, because the neurons are all sort of alike, but they're organized into these different nuclei that are sort of alike, but a little bit different from each other. The nuclei have long-range connections between them. I, I guess this is a, a... Maybe the answer is, yeah, of course, Charlie. That's, I mean, that's what a dumb question. Of course the brain is organized like this, and we have to take it into consideration. But I don't think that's how most people have been doing it. They've been studying the... whatever the visual cortex, say, and thinking well, of about Because most it. of us are most comfortable with studying, you know, one particular scale of resolution, yeah. whatever we are most comfortable with. For me, as a physicist, that's the biggest difference to physics. So in physics, you have four forces, and they're separated by tens of orders of magnitude. Like the difference between the gravitational law and the Coulomb's law, they're both one over R laws, right? They have exactly the same functional dependency, but the magnitude differs by 10 to the 36. Gigantic factors. On the brain, you don't have this. All these levels interact, right? And you really need to know about action potential in order to, I think, understand, you know, the corpus callosum. Right, although you know there's huge difference of order of magnitude between them, so I think they're much more intertwined. These different levels, it's just it's just a vastly more complex system. But that's the universe we find ourselves in, and we have to deal with. So I yeah, had a sort of related question, and and what you think about the difference between uh, the way, for example, the field of cognitive neuroscience is headed, and there's a lot of, of emphasis on on localization on the one part, trying to localize function, and, and in this case, trying to localize consciousness, for example, to a particular brain region. And then the other side of it, which is there's a movement towards taking into account um, synchronization across areas and, and the importance of, of different regions talking to each other and the way they communicate with each other. But what do you think about those two levels of ways of looking at it and how they come together? So I think it's similar to the question we discussed before. It's multifocal. Right? We need to know about the details. The details are going to matter a great deal. But we also need to know how the entire system works together because one thing we know about consciousness from EG and from fMRI and from other things, it seems to involve large parts of the brain. Right? Not the entire brain, not this totally holistic, but it seems to involve large parts of the brain. On the other hand, the details of the local circuitry matter. We can look at an analogy from uh, from molecular biology. Right? You have you. The, we know since Crick and Watson that the detailed pairing of nucleic acid it carries that's the heart of the code. Right. On the other hand, we know that to understand, for example, the three-dimensional shape. You know, you need to really know about these large-scale motors, you know, secondary and tertiary structure, right? So they're both local and global elements in molecular biology. And I think 
for networks, network properties, the same. There was global aspect for consciousness, as you mentioned, synchrony, and many areas in the front of the brain talking to areas in the back of the brain. But that's not to say sort of vague, holistic gestalt where everything talks to everybody else. There are still going to be some very specific laws. We know this. And then we can do, and molecular biology shows us now, we can do very specific perturbation where we can, you know, perturbate one, one nucleic acid to get rise to one mutant and then suddenly Todd and I see red slightly different because it turns out we share, we, you know, our, the red we have, there are actually two different alleles for the long range fuller receptor and they differ by one nucleic acid. Yet they still result in the fact that we have a discrete different way of seeing red here he than I have. So it's a very local property that gives rise to this big change, a significant change in, in conscious perception. But uh, if you allow me, I would like to move the conversation a little bit into the, that, this direction uh, and more focus on recent work you've done on extracellular field potentials that um, seem to address uh, another question about defining a problem, uh, but this is probably, uh, probably as, as old as consciousness, Right. How does the contribution of the action potential affect the local field potential, EEG, and probably eventually um, the bold signal in fMRI, right? I mean, we've been talking about consciousness and that is not well defined. Well, how these three levels of single action potentials, local field potentials, and EEGs, how they depend on each other, even though you put an electrode on top of each other uh, in the same area, they don't, they, there is no clear answer how they coordinate. And I, I, and I there think... There are two models for field potentials. One of them is that they actually do something. The other is that they are an epiphenomenon. Well, okay. It seems that there's a parallel <laughs> here, <laughs> which brings uh, um, 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 it's scale invariant uh, uh, theory, which applies to all these ideas of how information also flows in the brain. So I, I was wondering if you could please tell us something about this problem, just to define it to the audience, uh, between... Uh, local field potential, action potentials, and EEGs. And I think why it's important to solve I it. think uh, to, um, to uh, reply to Charlie's point, if you look at, if you listen to the heart, you hear a heartbeat. We find that very diagnostic, right? The, 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 the heart doctor, you know, can, or nurse can, exp can exploit that. But we don't think in this case that the heartbeat has a function, right? The fact that you can hear it, we don't think that it has any function. And so the question with the local field potential is, so every time we put a poke an electrode in the brain, we can see an electrical potential. We put, put two neurons, uh, two electrodes next to each other. We see there's a gradient between them and they change. But so far, people don't think that there's any function. Maybe in pathology like epileptic seizures, when your entire brain, you know, then we think it helps to synchronize and, and spread the epi epileptic seizure. But first of all, there's a question is, what's the relationship between the, as you said, Fidel, between the single action potential or the synaptic potential and the local field? That must be a manifestation of 100,000 or millions of neurons or glia cells. And then finally, what I measure outside the skull, the EG, the EG. We don't really, we have almost no quantitative understanding of the link between the two. So once, one thing you can try to do a very detailed, careful biophysical modeling together with experimentalists, that's sort of the thing we do in the lab, to try to understand the link between Extracellular potential of individual neurons and local field potential, and then ultimately between local field potential and EG. One reason I was interested in it is because there's a whole bunch of people who have so-called field theory of consciousness. They think, well, consciousness requires a carrier, physical carrier, and the carrier is going to be some sort of EM field, some sort of electromagnetic field, leaving aside weird, strange forces that we haven't discovered yet in physics. And um, my feeling has always been that there isn't enough informational capacity in these in these fields because 
local field potential probably summits electrical activity of neurons within easily a millimeter of, uh-huh. of cortex. And we know within that millimeter, there's incredible diversity of cells that have very different specific properties. And one thing about consciousness, it's incredible rich and in, in highly diversified information, right? I can be aware, ex- exquisitely aware of a very specific memory I had 20 years ago when I was with my girlfriend. I had this red wine. It was a sunset. Right? And I don't see how that can emerge out of sort of unspecific firing of, of a whole bunch of new in a particular neighborhood. Yeah. So I don't believe them. But to make this more concrete, I wanted to actually to see, well, how precisely, how much information is in the local field and how does it relate to the action potentials? That was actually... Well, and it's, it's a fundamental problem in, 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 in neuroscience, right? I mean, to, to know yeah. the, the, cals, the, the mechanistic, the causality between one, one neuron and then a bunch the of neurons field. and then the entire uh, yeah. area of the brain. Uh, and it's in, in very interesting that uh, it's the 21st century and we still, it's something that, uh, I mean, you and, and it's now being rediscovered, right? right? There's now a range of papers where people actually look at the t- properties, the receptive field properties of local field and how to try to relate them to the receptive field properties of single neurons. And then, as you just mentioned, we're now discovering that the bold response that we all depend on in cognitive neuroscience, right, where would cognitive neuroscience be without fMRI bold response, mm-hmm. actually relates closer to the local field than it does to the, to the spiking neurons, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. This, uh, it's sort of embarrassing that it's much more closer quantitative related to local fields than it is to the action potential that we, we hitherto thought they're, they're direct, directly related to. So we're really, we're really independent of consciousness. We really need to understand this link much, much more precisely. We'd also like to turn the problem around because we want to make electric fields and in the brain and expect that to make some neurons fire. And if you want to use so therapeutic... The design uh, electric fields that will make the neurons fire that we want them right. to Well, first of all, our brain is embedded in a multitude of fields. I mean, we, we stick one generator to our ear, you know, <laughs> two hours a day, roughly, our cell phones, right? And they, of course, have electric field and EM field, and, and we think except for some crazy people who think it causes cell cancer, uh, you know, cancer. But, you know, we, we want to know what's the influence there. We know from, there was a paper published in Nature a few years ago, if you put people, you put them to sleep between very low-frequency fields, it affects their rate of learning. Just like in 1984. Really? They put them to sleep and they learn, the kids learn. Ah. <laughs> they went to sleep. Literally reference. Um, all of that relates to Murakami. <laughs> oh, I can talk about Murakami for a long, long time. <laughs> Believe me, I can talk about this guy for a long time. You used up all your literary Yeah, probably. Um, well, just uh, um, um, as a final uh, question, I guess, um, given that you were one of the um, researchers that established the field that we call computational neuroscience and I would like to know your perspective on how successful this has been in advancing basic neuroscience questions, one. And also, uh, do you think the boundaries between modeling, engineering, slash engineering, and traditional neuroscience are disappearing? So, um, after Jim Bauer and I um, started this uh, neuroscience, this course in Woods Hole called uh, Method Computation Neuroscience, that, that, um, that you were... A TA in, I believe, for a number no, of years, no? No, 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 I wasn't. Wasn't you a TA? I was a TA at Catalc. So afterwards, I started a course that's still also ongoing in Telluride called the Neomorphic mm-hmm. um, Summer School. That's still going on since 15 years. And there exactly we take engineers, particularly interested in robotics and in language and speech processing, and put them together with people 
with uh, with people from the neuroscience community. So I think it's a small community. One has to be realistic. All these people who study sort of who try to learn from the brain and build better devices and people who study engineering to try to understand the brain like I'm doing. I'm a professor of both engineering and biology at Caltech. It's a minority. I mean, there's a, you know, the 100,000 engineers who know, you know, next to nothing about the brain and, um, and they don't really think uh, that is useful. So, for example, most people in computer vision, which is a big field now, don't think they acknowledge that, of course, our brain, right, our visual system is much better than any existing computer system, but they don't really think it's that useful. But a significant minority of people in, in, in machine vision think it is useful to understand and to model um, machine vision system after biological vision systems. So, so there is a community there that, that studies that, and there have been influences going both ways, both from machine vision back into biological understanding of vision as well as from the biology of vision back into machine vision. Okay, well, thank you very much, Christoph, for being here, and this was Neuroscientist Talk Show. My pleasure, Fidel. Yeah.